On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4. Be reading verses 25 through 32. We've been in this section for, this is our third week now, I believe. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, beginning now in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, as you're aware, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, in this section, Paul has been instructing us as to what living out the Christian life looks like, practically speaking. Because there should be a distinct difference between the old person we were and the new person we now are in Christ, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this, Paul has told us, involves putting off the old life with all of its sinful patterns and practices and putting on the new life in Christ, which includes a different mindset and lifestyle. And in verses 25 to 32, Paul uh, is giving us six examples of what our conduct as Christians should be like. And he's, he's, he's doing this by giving a series of negative commands, you know, what not to do. And then in most cases, uh, that statement of what not to do is immediately followed by a statement of what we should do. And in verse 25, Paul commands believers not to lie but to speak the truth because we are one in Christ, members of the same body. In verses 26 and 27, Paul commands us to be angry, but not to sin when we're angry, to deal with it quickly so we don't give the devil opportunity to cause trouble. In verse 28, Paul commands believers not to steal, but to work hard doing honest work, not simply to provide for themselves, but in order to give and to help those in need. And then in verse 29, uh, Paul commands believers not to speak what is corrupt and harmful, but rather what is good and builds up, that it may give grace to those who hear. And Paul will go on to say in verses 31 and 32 that as Christians we must put away all bitterness, anger, clamor, along with all malice, and instead be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. 
But right in the middle of these examples of what our conduct as Christians should be, Paul in verse 30 commands us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 30. And we are going to confine ourselves this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, here at Calvary Bible Church, we believe in the Trinity. I mean, we believe, as our statement of faith says, there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing Spirit, perfect in all His attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equal in power and glory, each equally deserving worship and obedience, and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. This triune God created all, upholds all, and governs all. We believe in the triune God. However, though we would all acknowledge three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how many today only think in relation to the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit almost being the forgotten member of the Trinity? When it comes to the Holy Spirit in the church today, there are, are those on the one extreme who have a complete misunderstanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and, and they treat him as if he is some kind of a, an impersonal force that they can control and use rather than the other way around. And this does nothing but promote an unhealthy experientialism and unbiblical abuses. And then, as an overreaction to the unbiblical abuses, you have on the other extreme those who, while acknowledging the Trinity, almost seem to relegate the work of the Spirit to conversion, and he might get honorable mention every now and then in the work of sanctification, but beyond that, his ongoing work in the life of the church and its ministries and in the lives of individual believers is rarely ever mentioned. And so our need of the Spirit's continual enabling and empowering to live the Christian life is rarely spoken of. It's as if they think, you know, we got this. You know, we can handle this on, on our own. And they give the impression that the faith, the church, and its ministries depend solely upon the wisdom and abilities of men rather than on the power of God. And it's almost as if they're afraid that too much talk about the Holy Spirit might somehow promote charismatic abuses. And so reference to the Spirit is noticeably absent in their speaking, their preaching, and their praying. And I might add their lives. And so there is experientialism and abuses on the one hand and neglect and indifference on the other hand. And both of these positions are quite wrong. They're wrong. Because we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit who is not any less God than the Father or the Son. The Bible teaches that the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. Three equally divine beings. And so when Paul writes here in verse 30 about the Holy Spirit of God, he's writing about God. Notice how carefully Paul refers to him. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He is the Holy Spirit of God. Now, does that mean that, that he's like the angel of the Lord that, uh, that's one of God's spirit messengers? 
Well, we might think that if we had just this one verse in the Bible. But we have many other verses to help us understand who the Spirit of God is. I mean, for example, consider the final words of Jesus in what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of who? The Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is a collective reference to one triune God. And we see that the Holy Spirit is right there alongside the Father and the Son. Or consider Paul's benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, where he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I mean, throughout the Bible, we see the three persons of the Trinity constantly brought together in different places and, and phrases. At Jesus' baptism, for example, there is the Son of God being baptized, God the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, while the Spirit of God descended like a dove coming to rest upon Jesus. Or again, you see the three of them involved in the spiritual gifts given by God to the church. And this is how uh, this activity is described in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. In the benediction of 2 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus comes first. In the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, God the Father comes first. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit of God is put first. So there's no subordination here. Three persons equal in power and glory. And then there's the word, uh, Peter's words in Acts chapter 5. You know the story. He's speaking to Ananias, rebuking him because Ananias has lied about giving to the church a sum of money he received from selling a piece of property. He claimed he had given the entire amount to God, but he hadn't. And Peter said to him in Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And then he said, you have not lied to man, but to God. According to the Apostle Peter, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. And then there's Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? I mean, God's temple is the place where God himself dwells. But Paul says in that verse that, that it's God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in it. And so God's Spirit is the same as, as God himself, because the Holy Spirit is God. David said in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? See, the Spirit of God is omniscient, or excuse me, omnipresent. Angels are not omnipresent. Mary is not omnipresent. The apostles are not omnipresent, but the Spirit of God is. And to go from God's presence is to go from the presence of his spirit. But there's nowhere David can run to or flee from God or from the spirit of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, These things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Paul also referred to the Holy Spirit as God in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18, stating, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so when Paul writes in our text here in verse 30 about the Holy Spirit of God, he is writing about someone who is God. God, the God who is. In the upper room discourse, we see that it was both the Father and the Son who would send the Spirit, and the Spirit came and acted, as it were, for both of them. And so the activity of the Spirit is is never given to us in Scripture in isolation from the person and work of Christ or in isolation from the eternal will of the Father. And that is because the three are one. The Holy Spirit is both one with the Father and with the Son. In theological terms, the three are co-equal and co-eternal. The Holy Spirit shares the divine attributes or characteristics of the Father and the Son. He is eternal or everlasting. He is omnipotent or all-powerful. He is omnipresent or everywhere present. He is omniscient or he is all-knowing, and yet he is distinct from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit possesses all the divine attributes of God because he is God. The Holy Spirit also bears the divine names. In Scripture, he is called my Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of our God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Holiness, the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of Counsel, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Might, the Spirit of Power, the Spirit of Glory, the Breath of the Almighty. The New Testament revelation is clear that there are three persons within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God, as Scripture makes perfectly clear. And as such, He works in perfect unity and harmony with Father and Son. The Holy Spirit is first revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, at the creation, when we're told that He was hovering over the face of of the waters, which indicates his part in creation along with that of Jesus who made all things. And then later in Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us, you know, plural, let us make man in our image. And that is a clear reference to the Spirit of God who was at work in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And so the Holy Spirit, you could say, was the agent of creation. The Holy Spirit is also the author of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God. Literally, God breathed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moved the authors of all 66 books to record exactly what He breathed into their hearts and minds. And Peter affirms this, writing in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as a ship is moved along through the water by wind in its sails, so the the biblical writers were moved along by the Spirit's impulse. The Holy Spirit is also the agent of the new birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is the Holy Spirit who imparts new life, spiritual life in the soul of one who is spiritually dead in sin. He brings sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life, and he gives the gifts of repentance and faith. Jesus said in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us or gives us new life in Christ. I mean, at conversion, when we, when we were born again, the Holy Spirit gave us new life. He united us with Christ. We became one with Him. He placed us into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit sanctified us, or He set us apart unto God. He confirms our adoption as sons of God. The Holy Spirit indwelt us. He took up permanent residence within us. All true believers in Christ have the Spirit residing in their hearts. For as Paul said, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit has poured out the love of God in our hearts. The Holy Spirit sealed us, assuring our salvation, guaranteeing our heavenly inheritance and our future eternal glory, which Christ has promised us and secured for us at the cross. And the Holy Spirit does all of this at salvation. It is through the Holy Spirit that, that all the riches of salvation come to us. Were it not for the work of the Spirit in our lives, we would have no faith in which to believe on our Savior Jesus Christ and thus no new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit is also the agent of the lifelong process of our sanctification. The Holy Spirit continually works in us to transform us into the image of Christ that we might become the people God intends us to be. And more could be said, volumes have been written on this. But the point is simply that the Holy Spirit is God. And as God, he is, be, he is to be revered. And as God, He is to be worshipped as God. I mean, we are frequently commanded in Scripture to worship God. And that must mean all three members of the Trinity. And when Scripture says to worship God, that does not mean that somehow we're to worship certain persons of the Trinity and not others, or certain persons more than others. We are to worship the God who is God. And God declares Himself to be, I am who I am. And who is He? Well, He is three in one. And so the command to worship God is a command to worship Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is also fully God. As John MacArthur said, when we talk about worshiping the Holy Spirit, it sounds new and it sounds novel, and for some people it even sounds wrong. And the argument tends to be, well, no, no, the Spirit points to Christ. Well, of course the Spirit points to Christ. But in pointing to Christ, he does not diminish his own deity. He does not deprecate his own identity or depreciate his own identity. He does not intend to diminish worship given to him. He points us to Christ, but he is no less God, and God is to be worshipped. And he's exactly right. The Holy Spirit is fully God, gloriously God, holy God, eternal God, worthy of our worship. The Holy Spirit is equally the possessor of all divine attributes that belong to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit equally practices in, or participates in every divine activity because the Holy Spirit is inseparable from the Father and the Son. 
The Holy Spirit participates in everything from creation to consummation. So all true worship includes the Holy Spirit because He is God and He cannot be separated from the Trinity whom we worship and whom we praise. We sang it this morning. Praise Father, Son, and who? Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost. The Spirit is equal in power and glory. And all three equally deserve our worship and our obedience. So this is who Paul is speaking about here. The blessed Holy Spirit. The third member of the Holy Trinity. But the Holy Spirit is not considered today in the same way that that the Son and the Father are considered. And many people find the doctrine of the Holy Spirit confusing. You know, is the Holy Spirit a force, an, an emanation, uh, an emanation from God, a virtue of God, or something else? Well, as we've just seen, the Holy Spirit is God. And he's also a person. He is as much a person as the Lord Jesus, except he's not united to a human body. But he is a person. He has a personality. And verse 30 here in chapter 4 is one of the many texts that proves the personhood of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieved means to sadden, to cause to feel sorrow or unhappiness, to make sad, to cause someone to be sad, sorrowful, or distressed. Only persons can feel these things. A force does not have emotions and cannot be grieved. Only a person can grieve. I mean, when you crash your computer, it doesn't grieve. When you wreck your car, the other cars don't grieve. Uh, when, when, when you cut down a tree, the other trees don't grieve. You know, when you throw a steak on the grill, or if you're a vegetarian, you throw some veggies on the grill, the steaks and the veggies, the other steaks and veggies, they don't grieve. And when you lock a cow in the chute to doctor it, the other cows don't grieve. Only people made in the image of God can grieve. I mean, we grieve at the death and sufferings and disappointments which other people endure. And so if the Spirit of God can be grieved, and He can because Paul warns us not to do it, so if the Spirit of God can be grieved, if He can be made sad or sorrowful, then He cannot be a force or an emanation of virtue or a power. He cannot be something impersonal, something inanimate, or something living but subhuman. He must be a person because you can only grieve a person. And the Holy Spirit is a person. He has a personality. And if you're not aware of that, how can you give to him the love and obedience and reverence that he deserves? Shouldn't we know as much about God as we can? As much as is revealed to us in Scripture? The Bible provides many ways to help us understand that the Holy Spirit is truly a person. That is, that he's, he's a personal being rather than an impersonal being. First, every pronoun used in reference to the Spirit is he. It's he, not it. He's referred to as he, as a person. 
For example, John 15, 26, Jesus said, but when the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In John 16, verses 13 to 14, when the Spirit of truth, this is Jesus speaking again, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the Holy Spirit's identity as a helper or comforter in those verses and others indicate that he is like Christ, who is a person. Jesus said in John 14, 6, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That word another that John uses means another of the exact same kind. Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another of the same kind. In other words, another just like me, exactly like I am, which is to say that I'm going to send you a helper exactly like the helper that I've been. And the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus. So much are they the same that in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And the point is simply that the Holy Spirit is a holy, living, divine, loving person. Obviously not a person like you and I. And the Bible consistently speaks of the Spirit in personal terms, possessing personal attributes. The Holy Spirit has intellect, knowledge, and understanding, 1 Corinthians 2.11. You know, he thinks, he knows. The Holy Spirit searches, 1 Corinthians 2.10. He searches everything, even the depths of God. He knows God exhaustively. There's nothing in God that is unfamiliar to the Spirit. He has feelings, Romans 8.26, and here in verse 30, he intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. He, he, uh, he, he can be grieved. He loves. The Holy Spirit has a will, 1 Corinthians 12.11. He gives gifts as he sovereignly wills. The Spirit of God does things that only those with personality can do. He speaks he commands. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. He teaches. Again, John 14, uh, 14 26. But the Helper, the, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit testifies, John 15, 26. Jesus said, he will bear witness about me. He glorifies Christ, John 16, 14. He will glorify me, Jesus said, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God prays. He makes intercession for us. The Holy Spirit constantly, from within every true believer, is, is interceding for us in, in a communion that is not in any language. It's too deep for words. It is an inner Trinitarian groaning in which the Spirit intercedes according to Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts and also He enables us to use them for the good of all to minister to one another in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts. He regenerates. He intercedes. He leads us. He guides us into the truth. Glorifies Christ. Directs our service to God. He strengthens us in the inner man for all righteousness. He produces right attitudes in us. He delivers us from sin. He illuminates the scripture to our understanding. The personhood of the Holy Spirit is also seen in the fact that he can be treated as a person. 
He can be tested, Acts 5.9. He can be lied to, Acts 5.3. He can be resisted, Acts 7.51. He can be insulted, Hebrews 10.29, and blasphemed, Matthew chapter 12. The sum of the Holy Spirit's ministry is beautifully stated in Isaiah chapter 11, verse, verse 2, where the prophet describes the Holy Spirit this way. He says, He is the Spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. G.I. Packer said it this way, the spirit is not just an influence, he, like the Father and the Son, is an individual person. And so the Holy Spirit is not just a force or an influence, he is a person who possesses the attributes of personhood. But the Holy Spirit is not only a person, he is a divine person who possesses all the divine attributes of God because he is God. And when we realize that the Holy Spirit is a person, we also realize how intimate God's relationship with us truly is. I mean, if we can grieve God's Spirit, then he must dwell close to our hearts and love us very much. And he most certainly does. No doubt most of us think about the love of God and the love of Christ. But how many of us, uh, ev uh, if ever, think of the love of the Holy Spirit? But we know that as a member of the Godhead, the Spirit is love because God is love. But do we even realize that the Holy Spirit loves us? But do we even realize that? Do we comfort ourselves with this great fact? And how amazing is it that the Holy Spirit loves us and that he would so much that he would come to dwell within us to make his home in us when we are as sinful as we are? Yet the Spirit is there in our lives, patiently working without ceasing in our lives to make us fall in love with Christ so that we give ourselves completely to Him, to know Him, to serve Him, and worship Him forever. That is what the love of the Spirit achieves. And He will never cease working in us until what He's begun He brings to completion. One man said, Christ loves us from heaven above. The Spirit loves us from within. See how close the love of God is brought to us? It throbs in our hearts. It draws us to Him from within. It is working gently and persistently in us, moment by moment. What a glorious truth this is, that God dwells within us. God dwells there permanently. This indwelling God loves us. This God loves us with such a changeless love that even our, our constant neglect of His love is met with a yearning affection. That's amazing. And listen, the Holy Spirit's staying with us is not conditioned on our love for Him but rather on his love for us. I mean, his love is so strong, so mighty, so constant, that it can never fail. Our love fails all the time. And even when he sees us immersed in sin, he doesn't leave us or turn away. 
You know, we have fallen into such loving hands. We have come under such loving care. We are, are the companion of such a loving spirit. And that's our hope. You know, when we find ourselves saying to our spouse or even to a dear friend, I love you. You know, she or he almost always says back to us, and I love you too. But we need to remember the Holy Spirit loves us more. And he continues working in us when we're as cold as ice. And when we've made the worst mistake of our entire life, he, he refuses to give up on us. Like the song says, O love that will not let me go. Like the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit loves us. But we can grieve the blessed Spirit. This word grieve is a love word in the sense that you can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. You can only grieve someone who loves you. I mean, our enemies don't grieve for us, right? No, our enemies rejoice when we hit the dust. They rejoice at our suffering and disappointments. Only friends, family, those who love us, grieve for us. Well, the Spirit of God loves us, and we can grieve Him. Now think about that. God the Holy Spirit can be grieved. But the Spirit's grief is not exactly the same as ours. I mean, his grief, or his, the Holy Spirit cannot be paralyzed by grief. And his grief is always holy, undefiled by sin, ungodly jealousy, and all the other flaws that often attend our sorrow. I mean, his grief ultimately is a mystery. I mean, it's an astounding thought that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Because God is unchangeable and he is in no way dependent on his creation for his happiness. He is the eternally blessed God. And so there's a mystery here that we cannot fully understand. In some sense, God being grieved is what theologians call an anthropopathism. Anthropopathism, there we go. It's a big word which means attributing human characteristics to God. Or, excuse me, attributing human emotions to God. And it, the Bible does that so that we can understand. And it's similar to an anthropomorphism, <laughs> which means attributing human characteristics to God, such as when the Bible speaks of God's right hand or his mighty arm. We're well, not to understand it literally, but the Bible is simply stooping to our level so that we can kind of get a handle on the meaning. And Paul tells us here that the Holy Spirit who indwells us and loves us can be grieved. And this is only true of those who are believers. Cannot apply to a non-Christian. I mean, an unbeliever can resist the Holy Spirit, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but he cannot grieve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit doesn't dwell within him. The only person who can grieve the Holy Spirit is one who belongs to the family and is in, in a personal relationship with God and indwelt by the Spirit. 
And so we need to realize that the Holy Spirit is in us. He's always with us. And so our every action, our every thought, our every motive, our every word is absolutely known to him. And so it's possible for us to grieve him, to disappoint him, to sadden him, and to make him sorrowful. Some commentators have asked why Paul speaks about grieving the Holy Spirit at this point. Because the statement might have been inserted anywhere, but why here? Almost looks like an interruption, and you know, so why was it made at all? Well, I would agree with Lloyd-Jones, who said, this statement covers both the preceding exhortations and injunctions, and also those which follow. He said it comes here as a kind of center, a, a focus, of all that is said in regard to the particulars of living out the Christian life. And so in the midst of his exhortations as to how we are to live as believers, Paul says to us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And when Paul warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God in this verse, he is echoing the language of Isaiah 63, verse 10. And in that passage, the prophet recalls the Exodus and how God redeemed his people with love and mercy But they rebelled against him in the desert, and it says they grieved his Holy Spirit. And in Psalm 78, the psalmist laments how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. In the New Testament, on on one occasion, Jesus entered a synagogue on the Sabbath, and as he was preparing to heal a man with a withered hand, he looked around at the Pharisees, and we're told in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to, them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I mean, what Jesus felt then is what the Holy Spirit feels today at the sight of sin in his children. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. You say, well, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, the short answer to that is by our sin. Well, it must be a big sin. No, sin. One wrong thought. Sin. Wrong motives. Sin. It doesn't have to be, you know, murder, rape, robbery, adultery. Sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit by disobeying his word, defying his will, and rejecting his ways. The immediate context tells us that we grieve him when we do not walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, when we do not put forth intense effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, when we fail to use the gifts God has given us for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ, failing to do our part to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, when we do not put off the old self and live the way we did before, coming to faith in Christ, not being renewed in the spirit of our minds, when we do not put on the new self, when we do not live the life of the new people that we 
are in Christ Jesus, when we are lying instead of speaking the truth, when instead of righteous anger we have an unrighteous anger, when we are stealing rather than working hard and giving, when our speech is corrupt instead of good, building up and giving grace to those who hear, by not putting away all bitterness, anger, clamor, along with all malice, and by not being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us, and all the rest of the things that Paul is going to say throughout the rest of Ephesians. Anything that we do, anything that we say which is sinful, is grieving to the Holy Spirit of God. Anything that belongs to the flesh grieves the Spirit. And we can grieve Him by our thoughts and our motives. I mean, He's as much grieved by sinful thoughts and motives as by sinful words and sinful actions. When we as believers sin, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Not only because he loves us, but also because he is holy. The Greek construction of verse 30 is literally, and do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy One of God. It puts an emphasis on his holiness. I mean, God's holiness means that he is absolutely apart from and opposed to all sin and all evil. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy 6.16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. In Isaiah's vision of God, Isaiah 6.3, the holy angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Holy Spirit is grieved by our sin because he's holy. And you know, there's a, a popular misunderstanding today that God's grace means that he tolerates a certain amount of sin in his children. You know, that God is like some kind of a doting father who sees his child disobey and chuckles. He's <laughs> just a chip off the old block. Loved ones, the Holy Spirit never chuckles at our sin. He is holy. Which means that all sin, but especially the sin of his redeemed children, grieves him. But it was God's absolute holiness that sent His Son to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. If He were not holy, He could have just dismissed our sins, but His holiness demands that the penalty be paid. I mean, our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit because He loves us, it strains our relationship with Him, and because He is holy. And as God, he hates all sin. And so let me ask you some, let me ask you this morning, is there something in your life that is grieving the Holy Spirit of God? Is there some part of the Word of God which you are continually disobeying? Is there truth that you are rejecting? You know, are you refusing to walk in His ways in, in some area? Is there a relationship which you cannot ask God's blessing upon? 
Is there a Christian duty or responsibility that you are neglecting? Are you defying the will of God concerning something? And how are you grieving the Spirit of God? Is prayerlessness, is your prayerlessness grieving the Spirit? Paul said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And how would you like to live with somebody who was everlastingly grieving your heart by their conduct? So what happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, let me say that sin may bring temporary pleasure. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. So sin may bring temporary pleasure but it will bring long-term pain. There are consequences for sin. I mean, holiness is often more difficult in the short term, but it brings lasting peace, joy, and pleasure. You grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning, you'll suffer certain consequences. And this, loved ones, is why so many Christians today are unhappy and so spiritually unproductive. One man said, this, this explains the misery of so many believers. For it is precisely by reason of permitting sin that they have lost the joy, peace, and blessedness they once knew. You know, what are the consequences of grieving the Holy Spirit? Well, I found Lloyd-Jones and Spurgeon to be very helpful on this point, and, and I can only briefly comment on these. What are the consequences of grieving the Holy Spirit? Number one, you'll lose all sense of the Spirit's presence. The Spirit will be like someone who's hiding from you. No comfort, no words of peace, no thoughts of love. Uh, There'll be what one man called an aching void which the world can never fill. Number two, if you grieve the Spirit, you'll lose your sense of God's love. God doesn't stop loving you but you will not experience the warmth of his love as long as you remain in sin. Number three, you'll lose the joy of your salvation. After David repented of his sin, he prayed that God would restore the joy of his salvation. You will also lose the assurance of your salvation. The epistle of 1 John gives us many ways that we can rest assured of our salvation. And it's clear that if we are grieving the Spirit through sin, we cannot enjoy that assurance. You'll constantly be questioning your salvation. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to be able to say, the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Number five, you'll lose God's comfort in your trials. You can't draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy in your trials at the same time you're grieving the Holy Spirit by your sin. You'll lose the assurance of answered prayer. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity or if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. He'll hear a prayer of repentance. But we cannot ask God to bless us with answers to prayer while we are in sin. 
Number seven, you'll lose the ability to bear fruit and gain rewards in your service for Christ. I mean, if your heart is not in fellowship with the Spirit, you cannot rely on Him to produce lasting fruit for Christ. Number eight, you'll lose uh, all power. When you pray, it'll be a very weak prayer. You won't prevail with God. When you read the Scriptures, you won't see the great truths there. When you go to corporate worship, as one man said, there'll be no exhilaration. You know, running without weariness and walking without fainting. You'll feel yourself like Samson when his hair was gone, weak, captive, and blinded. You'll lose the joy of fellowship with other believers. That's number nine. I mean, sin not only creates distance between you and God, but, it also, but also between you and other believers who are walking with God. Because if you're grieving the Spirit through sin, you're going to hate being around other godly Christians because just being around them will convict you of your sin. Number 10, your usefulness will cease. Your ministry will yield no fruit. Your serving will be drudgery. You'll see it as nothing but a slavish duty uh, as opposed to the great privilege and honor that it is. As one man said, your Sunday school work will be barren. Your speaking to others and laboring for other souls will be like sowing the wind. Number 11, if we grieve the Spirit, he withdraws his manifestations. This is what Lloyd-Jones said on that. When I say the Spirit withdraws himself, I do not mean he goes out of you. He still stays there. But the gracious manifestations are withdrawn. And then because he is still in you, he will convict you. He will strike you down. He will prostrate, prostrate you. He will make you feel helpless and hopeless. And then when you feel that you are abandoned by him, he will again reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to you as your Savior who died for you and who still loves you. And he will wash away your sin again and he will smile upon you once more and he will restore you under the joy of salvation. Number 12, you'll suffer the Spirit's loving discipline. And really, uh, all the consequences that I've mentioned are variations of the Spirit's discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, makes it very clear that because God loves us as his children, he disciplines us so that we will share in his holiness. You know, there's not always a direct link between some known sin on our part and our trials, but sometimes there is. You know, in other words, sometimes the trials that God sends into our lives are for the purpose of positive training in righteousness to, to mature us in our faith. But at other times, there is a direct link between some known sin and God's discipline. When David sinned with Bathsheba, God took the life of their child in death. And the sword never left David's household. He used family problems to, to chasten David. But all of our trials are from God's loving hand. And we're exhorted not to regard him lightly or, or to faint under them. You know, if we're aware of some sin that has led to, to the trial, then we, need, we should confess it to the Lord. I mean, take care of that right now. And learn from it to avoid that sin in the future. You see, when we walk in sin, we may fool others. 
but we don't fool God. And we will always grieve the Holy Spirit who always knows the truth. And if we continue grieving him, then we will suffer the consequences. But even though we may grieve the Spirit and suffer the consequences, we'll never lose the indwelling of the Spirit. Oh yeah, you'll lose the sense of his presence and and his power, but he will never abandon you because he permanently indwells every true Christian. I mean, he is in us, he will keep us, and he will bring us to the glory of perfection. But if we will not be led by him, we need to be sure to understand that he will discipline us. And loved ones, his discipline can be very severe. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some were weak, some were sick, and some he took their lives. That's the discipline of the Lord. It can be that severe. But you will not lose your salvation if you grieve the Spirit because the Spirit never abandons the child of God. I mean, you don't go in and out of salvation. That's so ridiculous. You don't go in and out of salvation. You're not saved today and lost tomorrow and then saved again. That is a totally unbiblical teaching. How do we know? Look back at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The moment we trust Christ alone for salvation, every believer is given the very Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He takes up residence in our life. And not only that, Paul says here that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the seal that Paul speaks about here is the kind uh, embossed on an official document to validate its authenticity, like you know what we see on a passport or birth certificate today. Without the seal, the document cannot be accepted. But with the seal, it must be. You know, in Paul's day, a prominent person would choose an emblem as his official seal, and then using melted wax, he would affix an imprint of this emblem to an object, such as a document or his possessions, etc., Uh, all the things that he wanted to identify as belonging to or coming from him. And that kind of seal served several purposes. It was a mark of authenticity. And it was used to authenticate or confirm something as genuine, as with the seal on an official document. It has uh, has to have the seal on it to be valid. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit authenticates professing Christians as genuine. He assures us that we are his genuine children because false believers do not have the Holy Spirit of God. Number two, the the seal was a mark of ownership. It marked an object as one's property. And today we brand cattle and and other livestock. In Paul's day, they they marked all their possessions with, with some kind of a seal. And the fact that a believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit indicates that the one who arranged for the sealing, namely Christ who owns him, you know, he he bought us with the blood of Christ and now we belong to him and no one can take us from him because the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Number three, the seal was a mark of security. It marks something as secure. A seal was placed on Jesus' tomb after his crucifixion to keep the body from being taken. That didn't work too well. But. But likewise, believers are protected by the seal of the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, God sealed us with his Holy Spirit when we trusted in Christ, securing our salvation. And listen, no one can break God's seal. And number four, a seal was used as a certification of completion. It was used to certify the completion of a business transaction. So when the, the deal is sealed, the purchase is final and the property changes hands. And that's why after Jeremiah bought the field at Anatoth, he took the sealed deed of purpose, of, of purchase, excuse me. And likewise, the moment the Spirit comes into the life of a believer, the process of salvation not only begins, but in a sense, it is also completed. The presence of the Spirit shows that redemption has been accomplished and the believer's salvation cannot now be stopped. And so at the moment of conversion, through the Spirit, believers are authenticated. We are marked as belonging to Christ. We are secured and protected from things that might separate us from God. And our redemption has been accomplished. The ransom price has been paid and accepted by God. The believer's salvation cannot now be stopped. We have been sealed by the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or first, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul spoke of the Spirit saying that he is sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we can be confident of our ultimate salvation because of the Father's sovereign election, the Son's perfectly accomplished work, and the Spirit's ministry of sealing us so that what God began, he is sure to finish as well. God the Holy Spirit sealed us. Our souls are marked indelibly as the children of God. And so Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, who is the seal that guarantees our salvation until the day, he says, of redemption. And the day of redemption refers to the final day of salvation and judgment that is the goal of history. It's when those who have rebelled against God will meet with his wrath and God's own people will both experience deliverance and receive their promised inheritance. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Paul says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. One man said to grieve him is to wound him on whom our salvation depends. We think about that. To grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin is to wound Him on whom our salvation depends. You know, no right-thinking Christian would ever want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let me think of it. The one who is our, our comforter, our helper, is himself grieved by our sin. The Spirit who convicts my heart of sin generates in me love for God, gives me new birth, applies to me all the blessings and benefits of salvation, and seals my redemption until the coming of my Lord. This same Spirit who loves me so intimately and perfectly, 
I can cause to grieve. You can cause to grieve. Why would we ever want to grieve the Holy Spirit? Why would we hold on to sin that will bring the Holy Spirit's sorrow and push him away? Why would we turn our hearts back toward our former lives or go back to our former ways, grieving the Spirit? Ultimately, we should never want to grieve the Spirit. Not merely because of what it will mean to us, but what it will mean to Him. One man said that we should not grieve the Spirit because He is, because He is who and what He is. And that ought to be enough, he said. He is the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity. And He is dwelling as a guest within us, in our very bodies, a gracious, willing guest. The very greatness of His person ought to be enough for us. You know, we realize that the Holy Spirit is living in us and how great His glory and His love for us truly is. I mean, we should never want to offend Him and grieve Him, but rather to please Him and to cause others to praise Him because of our lives. Well, how does this work out in practice? Well, Paul's been telling us in this chapter. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. You know, putting off the old life, putting on the new and and holy life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Are these things that the Spirit is saying to you? I don't mean anything weird. Holy Spirit speaks to us through His Word in an objective sense, uh, providentially leads us and guides us, but there's also a subjective sense to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He impresses things upon our heart and our mind. So are these things the Spirit is saying to you? And perhaps there's someone here this morning who's lost the felt presence of Christ with you. And you have no sense of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Or perhaps you need an attitude change. Or perhaps there's sexual sin that you need to repent of. You know, things that Paul will address a bit further on in this letter. Perhaps you've so, grie- you've so grieved the Spirit that you've lost all sense of His presence and, and you're at a state of backsliding and coldness. Listen to me for a moment. The Spirit knows each of us and lives in us. 
And as God's word is preached, and as you read the Bible and and pray and meditate on, on what you've been reading, the Spirit will convict you of sins and sinful desires. He no doubt is convicting of sin right now at this very moment. So how should you or how should we respond? Well, do not grieve him by uh, rejecting his conviction. Don't grieve him. But rather repent of the sin. Repent of the sin that has grieved the Spirit. Give it up. I mean, kill it right now. As one man said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And as you respond to his prompting through his word, the the Holy Spirit will enable and empower you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he will lead you into a godly life of good works and into eternal glory. And all of this for the honor and the glory of our great triune God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you are, I'm sure you're aware of it. And I would urge you this morning to repent of your sin. You know, claim that wonderful promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's stand and pray. And I want to close this morning with, uh, I don't think I've ever done this, but I'm going to close this morning with a prayer by one of the great, Puritan preachers and writers, John Owen. And so uh, this is our closing prayer, if you'll bow with me. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your own great love and infinite condescension. You willingly come forth from the Father to be my comforter. You knew what I was and what I could do that I would grieve you, provoke you, quench you, and defile your dwelling place. And yet you came to be my comforter. And now you pursue my progress in sanctification and all the fruits of regeneration, dissuading me from evil. In return, may I pursue holiness on the account of your love, kindness, and tenderness. May I delight with you May I delight you with my obedience and not grieve you with evils and follies. Holy Spirit, in your infinite love and kindness towards me, you have condescended to be my comforter, and you do so willingly, freely, powerfully. I have received so much from you. In the multitude of my perplexities, how you have refreshed my soul. Can I live one day without your consolation? And then shall I grieve you by my negligence, sin, and folly? No, may your love constrain me. May every step I take be well-pleasing to you. 
May I have communion with you as I consider you by faith to be the source of all the supplies and assistance I have by grace, of all the good intentions and motives in my heart, of all my strivings and contendings against sin. They come from your love, kindness, and tenderness so that I may be careful and watchful to employ them. As you shed abroad the love of God in my heart, as you witness to my adoption, as I consider your presence and ponder your love, goodness, and kindness, so may I be filled with reverence for you and labor to keep your temple pure and holy. I return praise, thanks, honor, glory, and blessing to you for the many mercies and privileges which I receive from you. Amen. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me By your blood we have been set